Welcome to Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com, the mobile app, as well as most popular podcast platforms. He's Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow. With you for the next 60 minutes as we will continue to break down all the latest news and notes surrounding the New York Giants. A little bit later on in the program, I'll answer some of your submitted questions and get into some NFC East-related news, as well as reports that the NFL will likely release its regular season schedule by the end of the week. But we start with the NFL Draft. The Giants selected Oregon offensive lineman Shane Lemieux with the 150th overall pick in the fifth round, and we are now joined by a special guest, the man who coached him up when he was a member of the Ducks for the last few seasons, the head football coach at Oregon, Mario Cristobal. Coaching on Lance Meadow and Paul Dottino here on Giants.com's Big Blue Kickoff Live. Greatly appreciate the time today. Hope you and yours are safe and healthy. How's everything on your end? Everything's going well, you know, living in the Zoom world and making sure guys stay engaged and prepared to go when we're given the green light and uh, certainly really excited that you guys have landed my guy out there and uh, I can't speak highly enough of him. You're going to love him. Absolutely. Well, let's start there, Coach, because interestingly, when you joined Oregon in 2017, you were first his positional coach and co-offensive coordinator before you took over as head coach. So what were your first impressions of Shane and how much have you seen in his development over the last three seasons? Well, first of all, I tried to recruit him when I was the old line coach at Alabama, but um, geographically, it just it didn't fit. So um, then I get to fully recruit him, and I get over here, and the first thing I wanted to introduce was a very physical style of play. And I just remember him sitting in that front row, and his, he's just nodding his head back and forth going, yeah, man, bring this stuff, bring that physicality. I want to get into it. And from day one, he's been – an absolute just stud at the way he prepares his approach to the game, um, the way he practices. He just doesn't miss a practice. He's always the earliest. He's always the last one to leave. Um, I haven't been around better, quite honestly. So, um, again, I, I was blessed to be able to coach him, and I think you guys have received a tremendous blessing in Shane Lemieux. Coach, let me talk about that durability for a second with you. 52 consecutive starts, never missed. I'm told he never missed a practice. Only time he ever came out of a game for a snap was after it was already out of hand. We know linemen get beaten up. Was there ever a time that you thought there was a chance that any normal lineman may have not have made it, and yet his toughness showed and he persevered through and was able to play? All the time. I, you're not going to find a more durable or a tougher guy. Like, the guy gets it. Like, he needs to practice mentally. He needs to get those reps. He needs to get his hands dirty. He needs to, to feel that bull rush and anchor. He needs to rip off the ball and knock back a three technique. Like, the guy is, is a consummate professional. And he, he thrives in environments where a lot is demanded of him. And I, tell, I told him one day when he retires, I'm going to steal him as a coach. I need to get him back <laughs> here somehow, some way, because he is uh, – He's a real deal on and off the field, man. Coach, one of the things that jumped out to me when he spoke to the media, he said, I don't look at myself as a guard. I look at myself as an offensive lineman. And he said that was one of the things that you instilled in him during his time at Oregon. What is it about that philosophy that is so important that offensive linemen specifically shouldn't look at themselves as just at one position? Well, the one thing we do here... It's pretty, we had the fortune to have guys like Shane, another really great offensive lineman. We actually treat those guys as playmakers, and we game plan them as much as we play a game plan an X or a good tight end, a running back, or a quarterback. And so they're all in their own sort of way, and, and not in a super, you know, highlighted ESPN way featured, but 
we feature these guys, and, and these guys are responsible for knowing the entire offense from the center box all the way out to the tight end and the wing spots. And we'll also throw in questions on, you know, the X receiver and his blocking responsibilities to the boundary. So these guys look at themselves as versatile guys that can put their hand down anywhere up front and without skipping a beat can go ahead and take over and play great championship football. So, uh, and Shane, again, just just watch film on this guy, man. It's like rep after rep after rep of just, he's, he's, he's an ass-kicking mauling machine, man. <laughs> Well, Coach, let's ask about the, the versatility because Shane has told us he practiced a lot at center, although he didn't play there in a game. And then, obviously, Jake Hansen has helped him out a lot. He's gone to see uh, Latrell's Bentley and his uh, school in Arizona for offensive linemen. Could you talk about the tra- transition he will make, given his skill set, to potentially becoming a competitor at a center position in the NFL? Oh, I think without a doubt he'll be excellent at it. I mean, he has all the, not only the tangible aspects, but the, the intangibles as well. I know you guys, you want your center to be the most confident guy in the room, right? I mean, he's got to walk up to the line of scrimmage and be the traffic cop. I'd be the front, point the mic, make the line calls, be ready for plus one situations, you know, adjust to a tackle's identification of a corner fire or a safety blitz, you know, bring everybody over an extra man or, or be able to flop the protection and, that's what he is. He's a brainiac, but he's physically, he's a brute. So he combines all those things with extreme confidence and a super high football IQ. I think he'll have a seamless transition. We're talking with the head football coach at Oregon, Mario Cristobal, who was with Shane Lemieux, the Giants' fifth-round pick, 150th overall. And, Coach, when he spoke to the media, he had mentioned that here and there he did get some practice reps at center, and I believe some had asked him to take some practice reps at center during your team's pro day. How much did you involve him during the course of practice at center? Oh, he's gotten plenty of reps at center. Again, we feel comfortable throwing him at center, uh, Calvin Throckmorton at center, even Panay Sewell, you know, gets reps at center. So uh, to me, it's something where he's going to feel very natural at it. Oh, we tackle. Again, those guys have played all over the place. We do so much tackle over unbalanced stuff. They've all gotten reps at the tight end box on and off the ball. So there's a, the, the carryover from a technical standpoint. I'm talking about half placement, hand position, intent of the play, um, you know, leverage. Like football is football, and these guys understand the carryovers, the techniques, um, and all the things that go with them. And he has had a significant amount of reps in there. So I think he'll be an absolute star at that position. Coach, everything we've heard from everybody who knows anything about him has all been 150% positive. So I have to ask, what is it he's going to need to polish up as he does come to the Giants? And do you think at all him not going to the Senior Bowl might have hurt his draft stock? You know, I I don't coach in the NFL, so I I can't ever comment on that. I'm sure they got their... You know, their criteria for what they look at, how they look at things. I know that I've been around some really good offensive linemen. I've been blessed to be around them. Um, and he's the best one I've been around, you know, as a guard by far. Um, and I just, he, he, here's a guy that is just relentless in his approach to the game. If he has a flaw, the flaw would be that he is really hard on himself. You know what I mean? Like he, uh, he just, and, he, and I guess it's a positive because he'll carry it over to the next play. And and uh, you know, try to make up for it tenfold. So, but he's he's his, he's his own worst critic. And to me, that just shows the amount of pride that he has. I think what's great about him, it's about pride and not ego. You know, he wants to win. He wants to be there for his team. He'll do whatever it takes. I mean, 
I've seen this guy go through all kinds of massive, you know, shots to to the ankle, you know, I mean, be twisted up all, and I'm looking from the sideline going, wow, unless he's Gumby, he ain't coming out of that one, but he'll pop right up and just look over, shake his head, and keep going. It's um, This guy's exactly what you want in the trenches when the game's on the line. Well, and that's why nastiness and toughness have been two terms that have been used to describe him since he arrived with the Giants and coach. He was a team captain this past season. How much did that come into play, the fact that he is such a grinder, he is such a tough kid, and how did that transfer over to the rest of the team? Well, it changes the demeanor of your team. You know, I think the best way to put it is this, guys, and you guys know, you, you've been around Giants for a long time, and you've seen the season and the ups and the downs. And When he got here, he, he came to Oregon when Oregon was just kicking butt. And as a freshman, they go through a 4-8 and eight season. Um, and again, that, that's not a knock on the staff. The staff here have done an unbelievable job for a long time. This football's cyclical, right? I mean, it just happens. And all of a sudden, this new staff comes in, and, you know, uh, the regiment that was brought in was, uh, let's just say it wasn't patty cake now. You know, it was very Alabama ish. You know, I know you got a couple Alabama guys up there now. You know, Burt Burns is my man, by the way, running backs coach. Um, but it was, our, our plan was about as subtle as a punch in the nose. And, Guys like this were instrumental in the cultural change. I remember him standing up before the team um, before we played Washington after two successive seasons where we had lost to Washington 70-21 to and like 38-3, some of that nature. Um, and he was like, hey, you know, this is our new culture. This is, we came here to change this and become the most physical team in the, in the Pac-12 conference in the country. And it's going to show up today. And the whole team looked around and said, holy Holy, this guy! This guy just took a monster step as a leader, and he changed us. He was a big reason why we changed up front. And um, again, man, I'm indebted to that guy forever. I'm gonna miss that guy. I really wish we had him for a longer period of time. But I look forward to watching him play on Sundays. Everything you've said about his attitude and his mentality, Coach. I mean, you come from that Alabama coaching tree, as Joe Judge has, and and so many other people involved with the Giants. All the connections uh, to Nick Saban going back. How well will he fit in in the locker room aside from his presence on the field? Yeah, he's perfect. You know, and by the way, I think you guys have an awesome staff up there, just knowing a bunch of those guys and the level of knowledge and professionalism and you know the blueprint and all the stuff that will be applied. I, I really am fired up to watch the Giants play. And, and I, I couldn't have asked for a better landing spot for Shane. I mean, he is like, it's his DNA. I mean, the guy's made of the right stuff, man. This guy is going to show up every single day. Whether he has he, whether he has the most accolades in the world or has none, he's going to show up every day with something to prove. And that's why I think he fits so well. He is all about the grind. Coach, Paul just brought up that Alabama network that you're a part of, and you brought up Burden Burns, who is now the Giants running backs coach, who you certainly crossed paths with at Alabama from 2013 to 2016. A two-part question here. Number one, what do you think Burden Burns is going to bring to the Giants coaching staff? And number two, given the fact that you had some established relationships with members of the Giants coaching staff, how much interaction did you have with them talking about Shane, and how much do you think that helped them ultimately determine, hey, this is a guy we want within the organization? Well, I think it's someone that they wanted. You know, I'm sure everyone was surprised that they were able to get him, you know, where they got him. So, um, but knowing what that organization is, is all about and the people, you know, from the head coach all the way down, um, it's, it's a perfect fit. So it is of no surprise. 
in terms of Burton Burns, that guy's the best in the business, man. That's my guy right there. I, hey, <laughs> you would love it. We're, we're sitting there in Alabama, and, and we're having an offensive uh, staff discussion. I can see him over there, you know, just, just chewing on the back of his pen, and the coordinator's asking for a trick play, and finally Burton Burns pops up and puts his, you know, hand right through the table and says, I'll give you a trick play. Hand the ball off to Derrick Henry. That's my trick play. <laughs> <laughs> And the ball is a 240-pound big son of a gun that's running everybody over. You know, do that a few times. So, uh, he, Burton Burns is uh, the most fundamentally sound, technically sound, um, just mentor, teacher, professional you're, you're, you're ever going to come across, man. I miss that guy. I really do. That guy was a, had a tremendous influence on, on myself um, and so many other people. So, I think you're really, really going to love and appreciate what Burton Burns brings to, uh, and, and I, I'm, I'm happy to see him in the Big Apple, man. I never thought I'd see him anywhere where there was any concrete, but I can see him <laughs> up there. <laughs> well, Coach, you mentioned the conversations you had with, with the Giants staff. As teams came to talk to you about Shane, did they talk to you more about him as a guard since that's where he had had the most success and experience, or were they always talking to you about the versatility because they know in your program guys have to be able to have other skill sets? No, I, I think it's just a different game or roster, I should say, at the NFL level that anytime you talk about a guy as a guard or a center, you're also talking about him as the other. Because, um, right, I think when you carry a game, seven or eight guys, that's, you know, that's crazy. <laughs> that's just a whole different thing. <laughs> we, carry, we carry 15 and we feel like we're undermanned, you know. So it's, uh, I think it goes hand in hand. Whenever you talk about interior guys, they got to be able to swing here and there. And I mean, even nowadays, tackles, right? Uh, your, your seventh, eighth guy has to have the versatility to pop inside and certainly increases his snap value if he could snap the ball as well. So you know, that was always in conversation across, um, across the board with all teams. Coach, last one for me. Clearly, the offensive line is such a physical position and reps is so critical. You're experiencing this firsthand because of the current circumstances of the country, all of this remote learning, remote teaching, and that's something that Shane's going to have to now embrace because we don't know when they're going to get back on the field. How difficult is that, at least from an offensive line perspective, as you're transitioning to the NFL to be learning the scheme but not being able to get those critical reps? No, I mean, reps are critical. It's uh, the mother of all learning, right? The repetition. And I, I, I think, without a doubt, uh, guys like that, guys that you guys draft, I got to believe, are, are guys like, you know, Shane, that are just really high football IQ guys. That I mean, Shane could run our offense in his sleep, and our offense consists of inside, outside zone, mid zone, uh, pin and pull, counter, power, every screen imaginable. Stretch, um, ISO, uh, gosh, what else you want to call it? Uh, duo. I mean, so he's whatever he's going to have run what you're running, you know. So it's not going to be foreign to him. I'm sure there's always going to be terminology differences. I bet there's a good amount of carryover, and I'm sure there'll be technical differences. Which you know, he's a very he's adaptable man. The guy is very coachable. I mean, whatever you bring to him, he's going to be able to learn and do and. We're all going through the same thing with the Zoom learning stuff, and I think it, it's going to also show what the DNA of every player across the country is, right? Because at the end of the day, at some point in time, we're going to get the green light. And deep down inside, everyone's going to know what they've done to prepare for that moment. And even more importantly, the opponents are going to know and going to feel what everyone's been able to uh, do on their own to prepare for that moment. So I, I can guarantee you Shane will be ready to go um, when, his, uh, when his name is called. 
Final one for me, Coach. Uh, we talk a lot around the NFL circles about how offensive linemen over the years in college have gone to a lot of the two-point stance, and sometimes when they get up to the pros, it's a bit of a physical adjustment to have to learn how to put your hand down. How much did you do of, of both of those styles at Oregon, and how will his uh, skill set acclimate to whatever it is the Giants will ask him to do? Most likely, he's going to be, be down on the ground. Yeah, no, he's uh, he's had his hand on the ground every single snap that he's been here. Never been in a two-point stance uh, interior-wise. Well, we're a big second step in the ground, flat back, hands inside, and knock your ass back operation, you know. And uh, the tackles will spend some time in the two-point, but just like they would in the NFL, when on the open side, they're down. When it's situational, right, you got one of those hyenas lined up outside, you know, real wide where you got to protect the edge and, and get your feet moving and get to the cutoff point. But, no, nah, Shane has had no uh, – no experience in a two-point stance. I think if you put him in a two-point stance, man, he might go to convulsions. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a check. <laughs> he is Oregon football head coach Mario Cristobal, and he coached Shane Lemieux out of Oregon in the fifth round with the 150th overall pick as he went to the New York Giants. Coach, greatly appreciate the time and the insight. Hope you and yours continue to stay safe and healthy, and best of luck moving forward. We hope you get back on the field sooner rather than later. Thanks again. Appreciate Thanks, Coach. you guys. Have a good one and have a great season. Thanks again to Oregon head coach Mario Cristobal for joining us and breaking down what Shane Lemieux is going to bring to the team. And, Paul, let's start there before we get into other aspects that we plan on covering throughout the duration of Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. The one thing that Mario Cristobal did not hesitate in saying is that he's very confident that Shane Lemieux can play and handle the center spot. And what he expanded on, which I thought was extremely interesting, when Shane Lemieux spoke to the media, he mentioned that he's taken some reps here and there at center. But Mario Cristobal indicated that that was a consistent thing that they worked into practice. You know, they didn't just sprinkle in his work at center. They prepared multiple offensive linemen for multiple spots. So I think that probably gives Shane Lemieux even more confidence if the Giants come in and say, hey, not only do we want to make sure that you can play guard, we want to also make sure that you can handle center, God forbid, if you have to fill in or perhaps even start in a game. Well, I think this speaks to the program. And obviously, Mario Cristobal being an offensive lineman himself when he was coming out of school. And, you know, with the connection to Alabama, we talked about that, the Nick Saban coaching tree, understanding that you have to, you know, cross all your T's and dot all of your I's. This is the kind of prudent thing that really good head coaches will do. And it's obvious that he wants his Oregon program to prepare as many players as possible for the National Football League. He's not just looking to win games at the NCAA level. He wants to get guys prepared to go pro. And I think that's really cool because not every NCAA head coach feels that way. They're more interested in the immediate. And we see so many guys come out not really ready to make that jump. It's obvious Crystal Ball feels otherwise. He wants to make these guys better all-around football players so that they can advance later on in their careers. I will say I think it is a, a very fortuitous break for the Giants to be able to have had the research and the intel on this guy because I don't know how many teams around the league who may have wanted a center had Crystal Ball on their radar. Some of them probably did. But I don't think all of them did. 
And it's because of the intel that gets done, the background checks and all the communication that happens between these coaches that certain teams know more about certain players. And maybe it's because the Giants did their research. They realized that Lemieux could be a viable option to compete as the starting center this year. Look, we as amateur draft Knicks did all of the, the, the name searching and the looking up of, uh, of tape and video and, and, and bio sheets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when that name came up, I don't think anybody on our crew thought about him as a competitor at the center spot. We all looked at it and said, oh, okay, the Giants drafted a high-level guard. Hmm. And then, only then, after we wound up getting more intel, did we understand that indeed this wasn't just a projection that he could play center, but that this has been something that the player has actually had his eyes on for a number of weeks, if not months, and had been practicing at the position, which, oh, wow, now the light bulb goes off. Giants were looking for a center all along. Well, why didn't they draft one of those centers in the second or third round? Because maybe they knew all along that they were going to get their potential center later on in the draft. This is what it's all about, Lance. This is why you have personnel departments that do good jobs. Yeah, you look to see if you can have players provide versatility on the offensive line and you can move them around. Plus, remember, if you just look overall at the makeup of the 53-man roster, and clearly it's going to go to 55 based on the new CBA, Paul, and things are going to change in terms of how many offensive linemen you could dress as well. So there'll be a little bit more flexibility. But case in point here is you need to have the ability to say on your roster, whoever is the three main guys that we turn to as our backups, they have to be able to play multiple positions. So you have to have your swing tackle and you have to have your swing interior guy, meaning a player that can be lined up at guard as well as at center. And I think the common theme that I look at between the draft and free agency, Paul, is when you look at the depth chart right now for the Giants offensive line, you could point to multiple players that have experience or the potential to play multiple spots. And I think that was a big part of the thinking for the Giants. It wasn't just so much, do we have competition for starting spots? It was also, do we have somebody that can play guard and center? Do we have somebody that can play right and left tackle? And I think that when you look at the makeup of the roster right now, there are multiple options. And I don't know if we necessarily spoke the same way in previous years. That's not to say that there weren't options on the roster. I don't think there was the same amount of volume that we have currently on the roster that we're breaking down. So that, to me, may have been a big part of the conversation when Joe Judge came in, as well as Mark Colombo. Remember, Mark Colombo played that position, and he came from Dallas, where they mixed and matched, guys. They obviously invested in offensive linemen in the first round. So if you're talking to Mark Colombo and Jason Garrett, what they did in Dallas, I'm sure that was a big part of the conversation when they joined the Giants coaching staff. See, I, I would flip it. I disagree with you that the versatility was the number one priority in drafting Lemieux. I think it was to give them a chance to have a competition at center. I think it's more of a position switch than it is versatility. I think versatility is simply the secondary reason that you go after a guy like Lemieux. Well, I think, though, it can't be overlooked, the fact that he no, did no. play left guard all four of his years there at Oregon. So, you know, you know in a pinch, hey— the guy can absolutely play guard, and he can be effective at playing guard, but I think there is the upside and potential that if Spencer Pulley or John Jalapio does not end up as the starting center, 
then at least they know they have somebody else currently on the roster as well as Nick Gates. But I don't know right now, if you were to ask me, Paul, I'm not saying that right now Shane Lemieux is in the driver's seat for that center spot. I wouldn't no, go so far to no, say no, that. No, 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 Don't underestimate Pulley. I think Pulley yeah. can hold him off, but I think Lemieux is going to provide a significant challenge. I really do. I, I think that's why they drafted him. And that I wouldn't dismiss. I'm certainly confident in what you're saying in terms of him having a chance at being in the mix, but I think that right now, when you take into consideration Pulley and Jalapio and their resume, they have far more starts and experience at center mm-hmm. than Shane Lemieux does. And keep this in mind too, Paul. We don't know the extent of on-field work this offseason. And while Shane Lemieux has been working out at center and clearly they've been utilizing him in that capacity at Oregon in practices, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're going to throw a guy into the mix if there's very limited on-field work at that position. So that, to me, also gives guys like Jalapio and Pulley a significant leg up in terms of the competition. Well, again, we don't know exactly where Jalapio's physicality is, being that Achilles, uh, you know, we keep hearing about June, but who knows? Uh, I Look, here's, here's the way I look at it. The Giants have really set themselves up well because what we know is this. Whoever the starting five are going to be, and they will be the best starting five that they can put on the field, whatever the positions are, they're going to want to put their best five on the field. Now, if Pulley is not one of the best five, he becomes a backup interior guy. If Gates is not one of the best five, he's a backup interior guy and also a backup tackle. If Lemieux is not one of the best five, he's a backup interior guy. And for all we know, maybe he could wind up taking some reps at tackle. He said he was already doing that at Oregon in terms of his practice reps. So the Giants have set themselves up well. Here's the beauty of it. If, if guys don't win their starting jobs at the slots that the Giants are intending for them to compete at, it would seem to me that they are certainly going to be viewed as top-notch backups, if not at that position, also at another position, which is where your versatility component comes into play, which is why I certainly think that is a significant part of this equation. I still believe, though, that they really would like to see Lemieux compete at center, which is why they're going to force-feed him a lot of mental stuff during the course of this offseason. He's going to get that playbook, he's going to get all the video, and they're going to try to tell him, hey, listen, first things first, we want you to come in and try to compete and push pulley because competition makes guys better. If there's one thing we know, because Jalapio has been out and because he's been injured so often, if there's one thing we know right now about Lemieux, he's very durable and he's very healthy and he's going to come in here and if he gives it 150%, he will push Spencer Pulley and either Pulley will be good enough to hold him off or he'll lose the job to a rookie who's proven that he's better. It's that really that simple. Well, competition is never a bad thing, and I'm certainly not disagreeing with you from that standpoint. I'm just looking at it from the view of limited on-field work and a player that has played all at guard throughout his college career, regardless of the practice reps. It's going to be an interesting transition, especially if you don't have a lot of on-field work. That, to me, is the only significant challenge I see standing in the way of Shane Lemieux, at least early in his career in the NFL. Now, you brought up tackle. He played tackle in high school. So he has actual game reps at that position. That's more of a reason why he's been working on that, though, and has some familiarity in that department. Does Doesn't really carry a whole lot of water, really, to be honest with you. But, hey, the bottom line is this. The, ver- the, the versatility that you brought up before is something that Cristobal stressed during our interview, and he wanted all of his linemen to understand all of the positions. That is certainly not a bad thing.
And you could say the same thing about other positions. Guys in the secondary should learn safety and corner because you never know when you have to be called on to perform a role that maybe you did not get a lot of reps at during the course of a game. I think that's the mindset for most coaches. And honestly, I think that may become a big trend this offseason, especially with more time in the virtual classroom, Paul. If I'm a coach, this is just my own personal opinion. I'm actually trying to get these players to maybe take on roles and learn roles and maybe really delve into it where maybe they didn't have the time and flexibility to do so in previous years because now they don't have as much on-field work. So if I'm a young corner, I'm looking at what the safety responsibilities are and vice versa because you just don't know how the injury bug in the season is going to play out this year. Well, that is true. They always tell you that the more you know, the better off you're going to be. However, you also need to be careful not to overload some guys. Of course. Because there are some players who cannot handle that type of mental overload, especially young younger guys who are just starting out their pro careers. So you do have to be mindful of what the limit is per given player. Certainly at their stage. I mean, certain if a guy's like, you know, six, seven years in and he says, Hey, you know what? I think I want to learn more of the other positions, that's a little bit different maybe than a rookie who you're gonna give a whole plate to and say, Well, are we stuffing them a little too much? You gotta you gotta be mindful of that at all times. I do think the fifty five man roster though, Lance, and we've already had some conversation about this in the past. It's going up from 53 to 55 on game day, and they are mandating— Well, it's going from 46 to 48 on game day, 53 I'm, I'm, to I'm 55 sorry. overall. Yeah. Right, right, right. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, we've talked about this so much, my <laughs> head's spinning. The point being, though, that they are also saying on game day you have to have a mandatory limit of offensive linemen. I believe eight is the number, if I'm correct. Correct, yeah. correct. So so that makes things a little bit easier now because at least coaches don't have to play games with strategical position changes where they say, okay, you know what? I got to give up a lineman for, for a guy in the secondary. I got to give up a lineman because I need an extra receiver today. No, they're being told you have to have eight offensive linemen active on game day. So you have your starting five, and now instead of maybe only carrying two reserve linemen and then having a dilemma over what other position you may need, you're being told you are going to carry three backup offensive linemen every single kickoff. Case closed. They've taken that out of the coach's hands. I suspect a lot of coaches will actually breathe a sigh of relief because they now don't have the anxiety of trying to weigh the value of an extra offensive lineman against another position. I think that's a great point. Plus, if you do the math, just think about this, Paul. You can now have a backup center a swing guard, and a swing Mm -hmm. tackle. Exactly. And you don't have to worry about, well, now we better have a guy active in uniform that can play two positions. You could just have one guy assigned to each position. You obviously keep your fingers crossed that you don't lose multiple players at that same position, but you can have one backup assigned to each of the three positions on the offensive line. And that, to me, I agree with you, maybe allows head coaches, offensive line coaches to sleep a little bit easy at night knowing that, okay, ideal scenario, if one of our starters gets hurt, we don't have to worry about making sure we got X amount of practice reps in for the backup because that's not necessarily his primary position. Yes, and to be honest with you, you could make a case that that almost devalues the versatility factor because if I know on Sunday I can carry a backup center I can carry a backup guard and I can carry a backup tackle those are my three guys well now it's not important if I'm only carrying two offensive linemen 
I need to know that between those two guys, I've got all the positions covered. So versatility becomes huge, and it has been for years. But under this new system, maybe it's not that important. Time will tell. Listen, this is uncharted territory, both on and off the field, because teams are adapting to new rules, and teams are obviously adapting to the circumstances of the country. Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino with you here on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We thank Mario Cristobal for joining us earlier in the program. All right, Paul, let's shift gears to some NFL news that does impact the Giants because it's within the NFC East, and the Dallas Cowboys over the weekend, interestingly, agreed to a one-year deal with Andy Dalton. It is reportedly worth up to $7 million with $3 million guaranteed, and they still have not worked out a long-term deal with Dak Prescott. They have given him the franchise tag, so they have until July 15th to hammer that out. It's not as if there's a big period of urgency that they're entering, but this to me has become a theme. And I know a lot of people are going to point to, oh, it's competition now. Maybe they rescind the franchise tag. And we could sit here and speculate all we want. I look at it more from this lens. I look at it as, if you look at how many starting quarterbacks went down last season, and there were a lot. You think about Cam, you think about Ben Roethlisberger, you think about Drew Brees. We're not just talking about the bottom tier guys. We're talking about star-named quarterbacks going down early in the season via injury and a backup having to come in and either fill in for the rest of the year or play five or six games like Teddy Bridgewater did. You need to prioritize that position. And this, to me, is part of the Cowboys' thinking in that department, more so than maybe Andy Dalton being the starter. For example, when they had Tony Romo on the roster, Kyle Orden one year, they brought in, and they paid him good money as the backup. And because of Romo's back injury, he proved valuable because one year, he actually started for them against the Eagles with the NFC East title on the line. So I look at it more through that lens. This is a track record of that organization. And secondly, I think Andy Dalton's presence gives them leverage in the negotiation period because now unlike previously when they just had Cooper Rush on the roster in inexperienced backup, they could always go to Dak and his representatives and say, hey, we're more than comfortable having Andy Dalton start the season because of the fact that he did that for nine years with the Bengals. So I think it impacts the negotiation and the backup depth chart much more so than Dak losing his starting job at this point. Well, you know, look at it this way, Lance, and, and, I, and I'm with you 100% in terms of there is now a veteran who can certainly get the job done in Dallas's camp. I get that. I honestly don't think they're going to have a problem working this out. Stephen Jones was just on, I believe it was NBC Sportsnet the other day, and said, look, we're really not worried about this. We know we're going to come to a reasonable number at some point in time. And, okay, he's not a rookie. So this virtual learning or whatever it is that's going on during the off-season program is not exactly going to set him back a whole lot. Prescott's been at the controls of that Dallas offense now for a few years. He basically understands what it is that they want him to do. So, yeah, is it better if he signed? Sure it is. Uh, I mean, you know, we'd be foolish to say otherwise. But are the Cowboys really going to lose a whole ton of sleep over this? I don't think so. And let's let's not kid ourselves. They still hold the cards. I mean, at any time, they could rescind the tag, okay? They'd actually be getting better value when you consider the money that they're going to pay Andy Dalton, which is chicken feed for what starting quarterbacks make in this league. So if they wanted to elevate him as a starter, right, and they said, hey, guess what, Dak? You and your 30-something million dollar demands, eh, not interested. We'll rescind the tag. Good luck. Go find it somewhere else. 
Nobody else in this league is going to pay Dak Prescott $35 million a year. It's not going to happen. He's just not worth it. So if you're him, okay, you know that Dallas has the hammer. So so why would you why would you dicker further than you have to? At some point in time, when push comes to shove and they really both parties believe that he's got to be there, he will be there, and they of course will overpay him. By how much, I don't know, but he will be overpaid, just like most of the starting quarterbacks in this league are. Well, if they rescinded the tag just based on the timing, let's say they do it right around July 15th, which would be the deadline for a long-term extension, just based on the market, it's going to be very difficult for him to find a job at that point. Correct. At least a starting caliber job, because look at the market right now, Paul. Jameis Winston settled for a backup position behind Drew Brees. Cam is still unsigned. And Andy Dalton, at least on the surface right now, is also settling for a backup quarterback position. So mm-hmm. that's why I'm bringing up, I think the depth at this position, I want to take this to a big picture perspective. I think the depth at this position is 10 times different than the way we had these conversations over the last two or three seasons. And that may be good for the league. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's great for the league when you can argue that at least half the team say to themselves, we're confident, God forbid our starter goes down, that we could bring in a reliable backup who can put us in a position to win football games. That's the goal of every team. You're not looking for a star because you don't have that luxury with the salary cap. But I think you want to know... If we bring in this quarterback, will his decision-making keep us in line to win games? And you saw that with a guy like Teddy Bridgewater. You didn't necessarily see that with the Steelers because they had younger, inexperienced guys backing up Ben Roethlisberger. So I look at it through that lens. When you have guys like Jameis Winston and Andy Dalton having to be backups in this league, that to me just goes to show teams are no longer struggling for the quarterback depth chart to be finalized and confident about. That, to me, is a good thing for the health of the league, not a bad thing. Well, you know how I feel about the quarterback position. I do believe that it is overpaid. I don't believe, and and I asked this on Twitter earlier this morning, and I don't know if anyone has come up with the answer to it yet. I don't have the ability to go back and look at the uh, post-dated finances of all the teams. But you have, what, approximately, what, 10 quarterbacks in this league right now who are making $30 million or more a year, which is you know 15% or more of a team's salary cap. I would like to know how many starting quarterbacks in the National Football League won a Super Bowl championship in the year that they were accounting for at least 15% of that team's salary cap money. Do you happen to know? I don't believe there has been a $30 million quarterback that has won the Super Bowl thus far. However, this is where I disagree with that criteria being a fair way to judge, Paul. I think you need to go more so, though, what is the percentage of $30 million quarterback teams that got to the playoffs and what type of success did they have? Because you know it's very difficult to win a Super Bowl. But what happens if your $30 million quarterback helps you get to a Super Bowl? You're going to tell me you're going to be discontent with that? So that, to me, is the way that it should be framed. Not if you've won a Super Bowl. That, that to me, is such a limited criteria to judge the success of a team. There's a lot of teams that I'm sure, and I don't have the math in front of me, but there's a handful of teams who have $30 million quarterbacks and their teams have gone to the playoffs. See, you're, 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 not, you're not understanding the point. It has nothing to do with $30 million quarterbacks. It has to do with the percentage of the cap. Now, right now, because the cap is at 198, 
I'm using the number 30 as a, as a throwaway number because that turns out to be 15% of the 198 well, million I have that the in current cap me, is. I have in front of me right now the average annual salary for every single quarterback in the NFL. So I mm-hmm. can tell you who's making 30 or more. Right, right. Wilson, Ben, Rogers, Goff, Cousins, Wentz, Prescott, and Ryan are Correct. all 30 or up. I understand that. Okay? The point I'm trying to make, this is not that you're, you're missing the numbers here, Lance. It's not about a $30 million quarterback winning a Super Bowl. It's about a quarterback who in a given season was making a minimum of 15% or more of the team's salary cap. So let's say we go back 10 years. What was 15% of the team's salary cap in that year? I guarantee you that the quarterback was not making 15%. It has nothing to do with the $30 million. I'm picking the $30 million now because right now that's 15% of this year's salary cap. The point is... Teams spend way too much. They dilate their salary cap way too much on their starting quarterback, and it destroys the concept of team. Kansas City, good luck. You want to give Mahomes $35 million a year? That'll be the last time you see a Super Bowl trophy for decades. Well, it certainly makes it more challenging to round out your roster, but the bottom line is, Paul, everybody has to pay their quarterback. This is my response to these conversations. You're not going to get to the point where Patrick Mahomes is doing a new contract and his agent's going to go to you and he's going to say, this is the last contract. This is where we start the negotiation. Who in their right mind as an executive or a general manager is going to look at Patrick Mahomes and say, I'm not going to give him a second contract. We're going to let him walk and we're going to start all over again. As More if teams you just should show guts and do trees. that. More teams should show guts and do that because here's the thing. You, if, you, if you are willing to destroy the fabric of your team because you've got to pay the quarterback, you want to make him the franchise, okay, great. How many championships has Russell Wilson won since he got his new deal? Aaron Rodgers, Big Ben. Well, but once Doesn't again. Doesn't happen. But Doesn't how many, happen. But how many times has Russell Wilson and the Seahawks made the playoffs, though? A lot. They consistently make the playoffs, though. And that, to me, says something about how they've constructed the rest of the team. And I'm doing the math while we're talking, while we're how talking many times by the way. Andy, how many times has Andy Dalton made the playoffs? And he's not making anywhere near what these guys made. Before this last contract, Dalton was making an average of 16 a year. And well, he made the playoffs five years in a row. I can go to the playoffs five years in a row with a guy making half that money. Why wouldn't I do it? Well, Dalton made the playoffs with the Bengals on his rookie deal. Remember, he made the playoffs right? the first five years of his career, so he was on the rookie contract. So that means when he went to the new contract, they did not make the playoffs. But, but there you go. The point that, and again, I don't know what the percentage of the cap was when he signed his new deal, but the point is when you start giving your starting quarterback 15% or more of your salary cap, you are asking for trouble. Because, first of all, you're diluting the rest of the funds for the rest of the players on your team, including the steel positions, including your offensive line, which, by the way, are paid to protect that guy who throws the ball, okay? Never mind the defense, which is supposed to hold people uh, you know, scoreboard-wise down to a respectable number. You're killing the rest of your team when you give these quarterbacks that much of your cap. It is a horrible and foolish mistake that most teams make because they fall into the trap that, oh, i got to have my franchise quarterback. I can't let him walk. 
well, good luck to you because you're not going to win a championship. That's the bottom line, Lance, and it's proven time and time again. Well, what about and there's nothing you can say that's going to dissuade me on this. Well, I know where you stand. We've had these conversations previously, and I disagree with you because I like the salary cap, and I like the fact that GMs have to do well in the draft to round out their roster. I think that puts them to the test, and we see who the men are from the boys. But the Niners, to me, are the perfect example that it can work. San Francisco gave Jimmy Garoppolo big money, and I did the math. He's getting just under 15% of the cap, 14.9, if you want to be more specific, or 14.7 in that ballpark because he's making $27.5 million, and the cap last year was about a buck eighty-eight. And look at what the Niners are doing. They construct their defense through the draft. They traded DeForest Buckner. They drafted Javon Kinlaw. They keep retooling. Okay, but there you go. That's different. But that's different because he's still still under 30. I said 15% or more. To me, Garoppolo should be. But he's minor. He's minor under 15, though. It doesn't matter. He's still there. Once once you get fifteen percent and over, you're asking for trouble. Yeah, but the to me, to Paul. me, here's the problem: Russell Wilson's making thirty-five million dollars a year right now. Seattle is not winning another Super Bowl as long as he's on the team. It's not happening. But they're making the playoffs, though. Seattle's been making the playoffs since he signed that contract. It's not as if they're not making the playoffs and winning games. You got to judge it based on that. Seattle nearly beat San Francisco for the division last year. Paul, come on, let's look at the facts here. Let's be fair. Yeah, may not the, win a Super Bowl. I can't guarantee you that, but they're a successful then, team, then though. kindly, kindly give me. Go back and find out if you can give me the research, because I don't have it. Show me a quarterback that had over 15% of his team's cap the year they won a Super Bowl. Find it for me. You want facts? Go find the facts. Well, once again, I don't have that and, in front of me. I'm not going to throw out random names, but I gave you an example. I'm not throwing out random names an either. Example. I'm giving you a bar. Yeah, but Find I, me the bar that you say is beaten. Well, Find it for me. 14.7% it's not for 15. Jimmy Garoppolo. I understand, but you're really breaking it down to I minutia. am. You know you're why? You're really breaking it down because, to minutia. Because the, uh, the, 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 uh, when you talk about Russell Wilson making 35, Ben making 34, Rogers making 33, that's a hell of a lot different than Garoppolo making 27 and a half. You know why? Because with that other 7 or $8 million bucks, you know what you can buy in the National Football League for 7 and $8 million? You can buy an offensive lineman, a, a somewhat respectable one. You can buy a respectable wide receiver. You can buy a respectable uh, running back. Come on, man. Well, Aaron Rodgers is another example of the fact that the Packers made the playoffs last year and he was making $33.5 million. So if Jimmy Garoppolo is at 14.7%, right, did he win it, did then he win Aaron it all? was well over 15. Did he, no, did he but win once it again, all? they had a he great season and they made all. the playoffs. I, he I did get not it. win it all. Yeah, but you're, you're asking for the ultimate pinnacle, which to me— Isn't that the idea? Of course the idea is to win, but I think you need to take into consideration the nature of the NFL. There is more turnover, and it's so impossible to get back to the Super Bowl year after year. If you could consistently make the playoffs— with a contract like that, you're going to tell me you wouldn't sign up for that? I, I think it is terrific for teams to be able to make the playoffs as often as they can, but ultimately you want to be able to win the Lombardi Trophy. 100%. And it is my belief that basically you're breaking a team's leg and you're putting them on crutches when you pay your starting quarterback more than 15% of your annual salary cap. It's just that simple. And until you can provide me with the list of those long list of guys that have done it, 
I don't think we have a conversation. Well, then what you're basically saying is is that you only want rookie contracts for quarterbacks. That's basically what you're saying for the most I'm part. I'm more than happy to pay Garoppolo 27 and a half. That's not a rookie contract, and he's under 15%. And he got there. Good. I, that qualifies. Again, all he did was prove you wrong because the numbers don't add up, Lance. Well, he didn't prove me wrong because you're making it a very big disparity between 14.7% it makes and 15%. A difference. It makes a difference. Yeah, but the Niners also, their philosophy has been, we're going to build the rest of the team through the draft. If you look at the makeup of their roster, they didn't throw a lot of money at other positions. They gave D Ford a new contract. They gave Eric Armstead a new contract. Okay, but outside of those two guys... They've built the defensive line through the draft. The secondary has been built through the draft. And even the wide receiver core, like a Debo Samuel. Okay, George Kittle, they're going to have to pay. And Kyle Juszczyk, they pay money because of the fullback. But they've balanced out their roster the way it should work, where the emphasis is placed on the draft, Paul. And there's no reason why other teams can't do that, especially in a salary cap error which we've been dealing with for decades now. It's not like the salary cap was implemented yesterday. Here's the good news. There are a bunch of NFL teams who now have younger generations of quarterbacks on their roster, and therefore they have them on rookie contracts. So those teams now have a better chance of advancing. And I don't really want to discuss this any further because there's no way you're going to make me move on it. And I'm not, but that's not the point of the conversation. I never have a conversation with you thinking I'm going to get you to change your mind. I'm just passionately talking about where I'm coming from. That's it. I am never, my goal on any of these shows, I am not losing sleep over whether you agree or disagree with me. I can assure you of that. I am simply laying out how I view it and why I have no problem with the salary cap in the current structured league. To each their own. Everybody's entitled to their own perspective, but... What I'm saying is every NFL GM right now, if you ask them, they know the reality of the circumstance. And the reality of the circumstance is the quarterback salary is going to continue to go up, Paul. Of course it is. That's the nature of the beast. That's not changing. I understand the reality of it. That is not changing. It's not going to change, and the numbers will continue to increase for the position. and And it makes absolutely no sense, especially when you consider when you put as many eggs in one basket as your starting quarterback, and then he gets hurt. Wow. Just ask the Steelers where their Super Bowl chances went when their $34 million quarterback got knocked out of the lineup. How, I mean, you know, if I, if I said to you, Lance, that you only had $20 to go to the supermarket and you decided to spend 10 of your $20 on eggs, all right, and then you dropped them, wow, exactly how much food are you going to have to eat for the rest of the week? It just doesn't make sense. Well, it's common sense. It's logic. This isn't even about football. It's about common sense. Well, that's a good parallel to the conversation with respect to how we started with Andy Dalton and why the value of a good backup quarterback, to your point. That's what you you just spelled out, the value of having a good backup quarterback, Paul. Because you're right. When you do invest that type of money in your starter and the starting quarterback specifically goes down, you can't go out and have 7 or $8 million to throw at somebody else at that point in the season because you need to have flexibility to sign other players because of injury, which goes back to why Dave Gettleman says he likes to have X amount of the funds of cap space set aside for free agency during the season. So bringing that back to your point, this is why I'm telling you, the Saints brought in Jameis Winston, the Cowboys brought in Andy Dalton, mm-hmm. and we've seen other teams because they know as much money as you have bottled up in your starter, you could be Drew Brees, who's been extremely durable, and when you least suspect, all of a sudden, he misses five games because of a broken finger. So that, to me, is your point. Your point is, and I'm completely with you, 
Every team should be saying to itself, yeah, we got to pay our starter, but how do we find a way to make sure that we still have a reliable backup? And I see teams doing that type of thinking this offseason. And uh, that's just what remember I find one refreshing. thing. Just remember one thing. If, if Dak Prescott were to get his 35, and now you tack on Dalton's, what is he getting, four? Dalton's getting three guaranteed as okay. it stands right, All right. now. So now, so now we're upwards of over of about 40 for one position on the field. One position, 40. That's one-fifth of your salary cap money tied up into those two players who play one position on the field. Good luck. Yeah, it's Enjoy. a lot of money. I agree Enjoy. with you. But that's why, Paul, when you have good drafts and you bring in players on young contracts that don't kill your cap and produce, that's how you can manage that. And that's my point. So it can be done. Oh, it can be done, but it's suicide because it's virtually impossible to do. Why do you think Brady continued to take less than market value for years? Because he knew that was the way the Patriots were going to win. Brady, and you know this, that's, a, that's the best point of all. It's the, it's the proof that knocks you out of the water. Brady always took less than market value. He was never among the top five quarterbacks paid in the league because he knew if he shaved that point percentage off of his money it was going to allow them to buy that other player or two that they need that's going to help them win a championship Tom Brady understands exactly what I'm saying that's why he did it for years with New England well but the misconception with Brady and this is important to note Brady also structured his contracts with a lot of incentives so for example the Patriots said hey we're not going to give you this in base salary but we'll give you an opportunity to make the money back if you reach 4,000 yards or you reach x amount of touchdowns so the reason why I don't like the Brady example is because what people fail to bring up in that conversation, you're right, he may have taken less based on the market value of the quarterback, but the Patriots still found ways to give him a chance to earn that money back, okay? Let's not leave that out of the conversation. It's not as if Brady willingly said, oh yeah, I'm going to take $20 million less. No, New England's going to find a way to get it back to me, assuming, of course, he produces on the field. That was a big part of the negotiation. Nobody tends to bring that up. Which well, I think you have to bring to the, that up. According to the numbers that I'm looking at now, Brady has never once, his cap number has never once exceeded, with the Patriots, 22. Ever once. And that included all of his bonus money, his prorated money, and his guaranteed money. It never exceeded more than 22. Now, are those numbers in front of you, though, is that after every season ended and accounted for all the bonuses? That's my question. Or was that just how it was structured going in? Those well, are two let's different just, things. Let's just, That's say, all I'm saying. let's just say that the chart that I'm looking at, his salary cap history, in one season, the highest cap number he ever had percentage-wise, which is really the key here, Lance. Of this course. Is the argument we've the had. The cap hit is always important. He was 13.6% yeah. of their cap in 2006. That was the highest percentage he ever was in a single solitary year against their cap, 13.6. And you know why? Because Tom Brady believes in what I said, and he understood it. Keep in mind, though, incentives and bonuses, remember, that gives you the flexibility and the luxury sometimes to spread those things out over yes, the course but of multiple still, cap but, years. But, but, That's but, another but reason then, why the cap number is not ultimately that high. Okay, but then again, that you always have to pay the piper later. Exactly. So, yeah. so right, but... Even with that money spread out, he never in any individual year was more than 13.6 of one year's cap number. And that's the brilliance of what he... Now, of course, he has other income, so he was able to, to do things like that. But in, in, in a philosophical argument, 
Brady is totally on board with what I said, and the proof is in the pudding. It's right there. 13.6, the highest percentage he ever had on the, on the Patriots cap. In any event, if I'm the Cowboys, to be perfectly frank, I want Dak to play hardball. I want him to hold out. I want to be able to rescind the tag, and I would be very happy to pay Andy Dalton whatever it is he's going to get because the value that you get, production per value, production per dollar, PPD, as John Schmuck likes to say, production per dollar, they would be so much better off with a quarterback who is going to make one-fifth of what Dak is going to try to hold them up for. Well, and that's why, bringing this conversation full circle, I said I look at it also as the game of leverage in favor of the Cowboys by bringing in Andy Dalton because when you go to Dak's reps and they know Cooper Rush who's only thrown three passes in his NFL career, and that was all the way back in 2017, is your other option, Paul. It's a little bit different than when you go back to the negotiating table, and they now know Andy Dalton is on the (laughs) roster, and they, in a pinch, could line up Andy Dalton under center week one. And Mike McCarthy and Kellen Moore, the offensive coordinator, would have no hesitation. The other thing, real quickly, before we move on, I wanted to throw out, you brought up, you know, Dak knows the system, and he does, and Kellen Moore is still there, but there is a new head coach, and McCarthy is probably going to throw a few new wrinkles into the offense. Oh, so yeah. while there's not on-field mm-hmm. work, it would be beneficial, though, for Dak to be present for some of these virtual meetings. It's no always better that. if you're there, but the fact is that, that Moore and him already have that symbiotic relationship, and I, I don't think there would be such a travesty I'm for, with you. For, for Dak if he came in later. That's all. Okay, let's move on to some other NFL news, and this pertains to this week. Adam Schefter tweeted out, Earlier today, as we're recording this, quote, NFL plans to release its preseason and regular season schedule later this week, but one league source said Sunday that he doesn't, quote, think any international games are coming this year, end quote. So we anticipated, first of all, Paul, we had been hearing May 9th as that target date, so that falls right into line with this. And the NFL made it clear they're trying to move forward business as usual and staying on schedule to release dates, events, and so forth. But it should not be a stunning development that in all likelihood there won't be international games. I think based on the current circumstances of the world, I think the NFL is obviously going to let the research and the medical experts dictate the conversation. And if they can limit travel, that to me is the ideal game plan. That makes a lot of sense and a lot of logic based on all of the things that we have heard. And obviously, the medical folks and the government officials are going to have to get together and decide what they need to decide before the NFL can even move forward. But whenever the NFL does, I mean, come on. We, we, we know that this season is going to be extremely unique, again, provided that there is going to be one. So I, I, don't, I don't think anything should be a surprise to us at this particular time. And I think the other thing that it's important to note, even with the schedule being released at the end of this week, everything is fluid, Paul. And I think it's important for everybody involved in the NFL, fans, media, players, coaches, executives, and I'm pretty much telling this to a lot of the audience that already knows this, but it's important still to emphasize it just because a schedule comes out. You have to anticipate things are going to change depending on what is coming up in the months ahead and the progress of the country. Because remember, here to me is the big wild card. The big wild card is the NFL made it clear before the draft and before the virtual offseason program started 
They are not going to allow team facilities, Paul, to reopen until everyone is on the same playing field, which I think is important because you're going to have states at different levels of this, and you're not going to allow certain teams to go back, and then other teams have no access to their facility. So that, to me, is going to be a big thing to monitor moving forward. When do we get to that level? And if we don't get to that level, do they have to have conversations about relocating teams or relocating games. And I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. We've got a lot of months to go before the season starts. And that to me is extremely positive and extremely encouraging. But the big wild card still is not everybody can necessarily be on an equal playing field a few weeks from now. And that to me is going to be a big thing that the NFL is going to have to navigate. Lance, I think the one thing we can both agree on 150% is that all options are going to be on the table right now. And it's it's really, you're right, it, it's a bit premature to start going down one road or another. But what I will say is uh, none of us should be surprised by whatever schedule permutation they come up with, whether it's because of locations, whether it's because of days that they play. Remember, they're talking about the NCAA not having a season, so maybe some NFL games could be moved to Saturday I mean, all of these things are, are going to be on the table, and I don't know what the time frame is for the league in terms of finally locking something in, because let's not, let's not forget, logistically, once they come up with a plan and say, okay, this is the schedule we're going to use, then they've actually got to implement it, which means making sure that everybody can physically, physically adhere to the schedule that they've set up. And that's going to take a little bit of doing, too, you know. You don't just snap your fingers and make it happen. Of course not. And that's why I think that it's important for the NFL to stay on schedule in terms of its planning. Yeah. Because, you know, that's the other thing that I think a lot of people may have overlooked. Everybody was wondering, well, why did the draft go on and why did this go on? It's because the more you back up events, Paul, which is what you just alluded to, then you get to the point where it's a crunch, where maybe things do start to open up and get back to somewhat normal to allow small enough groups to get together like NFL teams. And then it becomes the fast and the furious to get everything else in line for the season to start on time. And I don't think the last thing that coaches and executives want to have to deal with as they're getting teams prepared to start the season is having to go through a draft or having to go through the other processes connected to the NFL. So that's why I thought it was so important for the NFL, stay on schedule, try to do everything remote and virtual as humanly possible so that when you do inch closer to the season, the only priority is teams on the field working out, getting ready to go, as opposed to all of the other peripherals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Now, on a side note related to the current circumstances of the world, we want to give kudos to our very own Sean O'Hara, his wife, really doing a lot of great heavy lifting and trying to commend all of the frontline workers. There is a great story on Giants.com. It's part of the Giants Now piece that our very Dan Salamone produced. And there is a tweet from Sean O'Hara in which he obviously commends his wife, for what she is doing, and she's delivering flowers to hospitals around the area to let the staff and patients know that they are not alone. And she is a nurse herself, Paul, so Mm -hmm. if anybody can relate to that, it's certainly Sean O'Hara's wife. Yeah, you know, when I saw this uh, story, Chris Raggy, the uh, news anchor on WCBS Channel 2 here in New York, was the one who actually brought this story to light, and he did a, a news report on Channel 2 the other day. 
And when I saw it, I immediately tweeted it out. And I was so glad to see that people were recognizing what Amy was doing. In fact, uh, one of the, the, the touching videos uh, that they were able to uh, collect for the report, obviously they had sent a, a crew, I guess, or maybe Sean was able to shoot it himself or, or maybe one of his kids. Uh, they're helping. The family's actually helping uh, Amy get the flowers together, you know, whether it's, it's the kids, you know, uh, compiling the different colors of the flowers or Sean himself actually trimming them or maybe wrapping them in the paper. Uh, the entire O'Hara family is chipping in and, and they're getting the, the entire packages uh, all wrapped up and, and, and kind of neatly squared away so that Amy can actually take them and transport them uh, to the different hospitals throughout the tri-state area. So it's, it's not just Amy, it's really the O'Hara family, a collective effort. They're, they're all doing whatever they can to pitch in. And what a great lesson for the kids to learn. You talk about parents setting a great example. The O'Hara children are learning firsthand as they participate in this that their parents are selfless people and, and they're doing everything they can to help those around them who deserve, who deserve a smile and a helping hand in one way or another. Uh, great lessons being taught by Sean and his wife, Amy. Before we wrap up the program, we want to answer a few of the questions that you submitted, and we encourage you to continue to submit the questions, giants.com slash podcasts slash BBK questions or hashtag Giants chat on Twitter. You can also send them directly to us at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants W-F-A-N. All right, Paul, let's answer a few questions before we wrap up shop. And this first one comes from Ian. And he asks the following, do you think the Giants should get a free agent wide receiver that is very fast and strikes fear into a defensive unit? Someone like Tavon Austin or Taylor Gabriel that could be dual threats as a wide receiver and a running back. I think it will add another weapon in Daniel Jones's arsenal and it will help Daniel get rid of the ball faster. Well, you know, Lance, we've been talking for months that the Giants could use another receiver in that room. Now, for me, I've always been after a skyscraper. I've always decided that, you know, when you when you try to put together that room, you'd like to have a mixture of guys. To me, if you've got a bunch of fellas who are 5'10", 5'11", barely 6 feet, well, you're going to make things more difficult for your quarterback. And I think that was one of the things over the course of time that occasionally gave Eli Manning some trouble. Because when you have the luxury of throwing the ball into a box and letting Plexico Burris go get it, of letting Akeem Nix, who, by the way, was only about 6'2", but he had incredibly long arms and very large hands. So he kind of qualified as a skyscraper. When you have a Monty Toomer, who also had some decent height, not, not a skyscraper per se, but decent height, certainly he had a long reach, and he provided a large box. To be perfectly frank, it's that receiver radius that I'd like to see the Giants get into that room. And when you look at what they did this year, well, they really didn't grab anybody in the draft. They skipped on wide receivers. But then in free agency, they brought in a couple of guys from Ohio State. Benjamin Victor at 6'4", and to be honest, my guy, Austin Mack at 6'2". They've got some radius. And that, to me, is what the Giants need to add more than a burner. 
Yeah, I'm with you. I think you got to look at the makeup of the current roster, and you're looking for complementary pieces to the current roster, not necessarily duplications. And to the questioner's point, he throws out Tavon Austin or Taylor Gabriel, who are known for speedy guys who certainly can play the running back position. You can run plays for them out of the backfield, but Sterling Shepard you can run out of the backfield. The Golden Tate you can move around. It's not as if those two guys can't fulfill the roles to me that Tavon Austin and Taylor Gabriel can bring to your team. So I'm with you. I think if there's anything that you'd want to add which the Giants certainly addressed to a certain degree with their undrafted free agents, and we'll see how those guys pan out when they will have an opportunity to get on the field. That's what you want to add. You want to add that big red zone target that could give Daniel Jones a tower to throw up to and win the jump balls or win the jump balls in the middle of the field. Now, Evan Engram, to me, can serve as that type of weapon as well, but I think it's important to have a wide receiver at that spot. And Darius Slayton, let's not overlook his speed too, Paul. Okay, I think he does bring that element. He may not be that small, shifty, speedy guy, but Slayton certainly you can run down the field and throw a home run to, and I think he already showed flashes and glimpses of that. I like Slayton. I think he's a heck of a player, and I think he's going to be good for the Giants for a number of years. But at 6'1", you know, he doesn't qualify as a skyscraper. And I 100%. think we also understand he's not necessarily a burner. He's one of those guys who's just an all-around very talented receiver who can be extremely productive, but he doesn't have that one really special quality that kind of boxes him into that one category that really the Giants need to add into their room. And keep this in mind. You threw out a few of the Ohio statewide receivers that they've brought in as undrafted free agents. The Giants have had some success with undrafted free agents. So don't dismiss and don't overlook the fact that one of these guys could very well carve out a role on the 55-man roster. Let's go to our next question. This comes from Sandy. Now that the draft is over and the Giants have their preliminary 90 players, What is the plan to be ready for the season? Why can't all the players, coaches, and employees get tested to see if they've had the coronavirus and or see if they have immunity to the same? The more we clear now, the more we can practice together and be ready for the NFL season. Has the NFL come out with any plans, guidelines for the 2020 campaign? Well, this goes back, Paul, to what you and I were talking about earlier. Number one, the main rule that the NFL laid out is that they are going to prioritize an even playing field. That's with respect to the X's and O's. So they're not going to allow one team to have a significant edge over another. That's been made clear. So that means that the entire country or every team needs to be at a point where they feel comfortable putting those people back at a team facility. That's number one. The NFL made that clear. The NFL, to my knowledge, Paul, has not revealed publicly any information about how they're going to go about testing or what they're going to do with the players. So to throw out random ideas, I think, would be us getting ahead of ourselves and would be irresponsible. So I certainly don't want to speculate with respect to that. But here's the other thing that I think is important to note, Paul. Whenever you start throwing out ideas about players and testing, you have to understand that the country as a whole is dealing with this. And the NFL, like all of these sports leagues, Paul, they got to walk a fine line because there are also the average individuals and people trying to go back to work and companies that are dealing with the same challenges in order to make sure that people are safe and healthy and there's testing available. So we've got to look at it while we love the NFL, while we all consume the NFL, while it's sports entertainment and we're yearning to get back on the field. The NFL, to me, is no different than the rest of the country and what they're having to try to get under their wings and try to maximize the ability to prioritize safety at the same time as balancing sports entertainment. 
you got to be smart. Yeah. And there's really nothing else to add to that, Lance. So that, to me, would be the best way that I would answer. And we're just going to have to wait and see what the weeks and the months ahead provide. But every team's going to have to be on the same playing field, the same wavelength, before we even entertain the idea of putting players back at the facility and on the field. So that is going to wrap up Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We appreciate you sending in the questions. Please continue to do so. Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions. Or you can interact with the two of us directly on Twitter. We're going to have a fresh edition of Big Blue Kickoff off live coming your way on Tuesday as we'll hear from another special guest connected to two of the prospects who were drafted and will be added to the Giants roster. Paul, always enjoy the conversation. Look forward to doing it again later this week. You got it, Lance. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. We will speak to you on Tuesday and always stay locked to Giants.com for the latest. Have a good one.